Welcome to Beyond the Boardroom with me, Kieran Paul. Today, we meet Paul Rissman, co-founder of Rights Collab, a platform for advancing human rights through innovative strategies connecting civil society, technology, business and finance. Now, normally, Paul, we do a series of fun questions uh, to get to know you, and I know our listeners enjoy these. Uh, But in the process of booking you for Beyond the Boardroom here, you said, and I quote, I need to warn you that I'm a very boring person. But then you revealed that you used to be an archaeologist. So, before you tell us all about Wright's Collab and your work holding banks accountable, can you tell us about your time as an archaeologist? So I wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 13 years old or so and was lucky enough to be able to uh, go to school, get trained to do it, uh, get a PhD in anthropology, and go out into the field. Most of the time I spent in India and also in, uh, on the Arabian Peninsula in the country of Oman. Uh, we were digging in Bronze Age towns. Bronze Age is oh, about 2000 BC in that part of the world. Trying to figure out what the earliest complex societies looked like. I did that, oh, until I realized that I couldn't feed my family anymore. Uh, and then I quit and went to business school and uh, got a job in finance. That's 4,000-year-old towns? Correct. Must be beautiful surroundings. Very pretty. Oman is a beautiful country. Uh, I recommend going there. Uh, and in India, we were in the middle of farmland in a very rural area with very close contact with the uh, people who lived there, farmers. Um, so there was a lot of cultural exchange. The food was amazing. Uh, It was nice and sunny all the time. We did it in uh, December. The weather was good and the archaeology was good. And so it's, you know, it's, it's an experience that very few people get to enjoy. And so I'm very, very thankful that I did get to enjoy that. And now that I'm retired, I actually do spend about three weeks to a month a year going back. So I'll be digging in uh, January in Oman. Well, well, no, not many people do indeed. Uh, Like, A, you must be the first person to have done it on Beyond the Boardroom. And B, if you do find something in January, uh, will you let me know? Sure will. And I guess you never know what you're going to find. Well, no, you never really know. You often find nothing. We know we're in a town. We know we're in buildings because in Oman, uh, the foundations of the buildings are made out of stone and you can actually see them on the surface. So we know that's a house, that's a house, that's a building of some sort, that's a tomb. Uh, And so we know pretty much are clear about where to dig, uh, but we never really know what any shovel full of dirt will turn up. And I assume it's an incredibly delicate process. Uh, Sometimes you're just moving rocks and uh, hauling boulders, and that's not very delicate. But if you encounter a burial, for example, I've excavated burials with a dental pick and a spoon and a toothbrush. It's pretty time-consuming. So a toothpick and a toothbrush. And a spoon. You have to have a spoon. Big spoon then or teaspoon? Teaspoon. 
Teaspoon, right, okay. Um, so now uh, tell us about Wright's CoLab. So after the presidential election of 2016, I developed a case of shingles. And I thought to myself, I really need to manage my stress in a better way than that. So I had been friends with a human rights lawyer, and he and I got together. I asked him whether I should go back to school and become a human rights lawyer myself. He said, no, that's a bad idea. Uh, I had been coming off of a 20-year career in finance. Uh, and he said that uh, human rights people really don't understand finance, although they need to. And finance people don't really understand human rights, although they need to. And so since I had been working with him a little bit on human rights projects and uh, given my background in finance, he suggested that I basically become an interpreter uh, between the finance people and the human rights people. And I thought, okay, I'll think about that. Uh, and I went away and thought about it and came back and uh, we formed Rights Collab as a result, as a partnership. Uh, and then brought in one other partner. So it's three of us now. Uh, and we have a number of pillars of work, but one of them is business and finance as it relates to human rights. And so uh, we are concentrating on that. Uh, I myself am concentrating on that portion. And you are also a director at the Sierra Club Foundation. So how does your work differ there to at Rights Collab? Well, it's actually very similar. So the Sierra Club Foundation is an organization that is the fiscal sponsor of the Sierra Club. The Sierra Club is the largest, oldest and largest grassroots environmental organization in the United States. It has about 4 million supporters. The history of environmentalism in the United States and probably around the world has been checkered. The guy who founded the Sierra Club was friends with eugenicists, for example way back in the turn of the uh, 20th century. Some of the national parks in the United States uh, were founded only after they kicked out the indigenous populations. So uh, there was a little bit of ethnic cleansing going on uh, during the formation of the national park system in the US. And so uh, there's always been a tension between environmentalists and human rights. And the Sierra Club recognized this early on and they've been trying very, very hard to be intersectional about climate justice, environmental justice, and how human rights impacts the environment and how the environment impacts human rights. And so it was quite natural uh, for me as a director to help them and for them to help me understand uh, things like the just transition. And, and they're really actually leaders in that space now. I'm very happy to say. So Sierra Club does a lot of work encouraging financial institutions to step up their climate commitments. Why do you specifically target the financial sector? Well, Sierra Club has traditionally targeted uh, polluting corporations and not the financial sector. But uh, if you think about it, climate change is a global problem. And climate change is a very multifaceted problem. And so you could shut off all the emissions in the United States and you're still going to have a climate problem. But anywhere in the world, uh, whether you are a public company or whether you are a private company or whether you are a government, you can't do anything without money. And so everyone needs finance. And the providers of the finance, therefore, 
have a preponderantly powerful position vis-a-vis climate change, vis-a-vis human rights, vis-a-vis anything else. And so if you can influence the big financial players, then you are leveraging your influence many times over. And you go from being a local uh, irritant to a global irritant. uh, And you go from being uh, an organization that may target one company or two companies to an organization that can target every company. And that's why the financial system is so important. And that's why targeting the main financial actors is so important. I'm Emmanuel Palacuccia of Alliance Advisors, and we sponsored Insightia's Proxy Voting Annual Review 2022, which you can read for free now. And some fund managers like BlackRock have had a pretty tough ride this year thanks to the increasingly vocal anti-ESG movement. And Paul, do you think anti-ESG could significantly hinder investors in going green or is it just like a a temporary bump in the road? Uh, Depends on how the politics go because politicians can do a lot of damage even if they are uh, working on an issue that really is fairly insignificant in the scheme of things. The thing about ESG is that it has popular support. Workers want companies to treat them better. Um, Consumers want to buy products that are sustainable. Uh, Investors want to invest in sustainable uh, investment products. Uh, And so, you know, the, the anti-ESG people, there aren't any investors who are anti-ESG people. It's all politicians. So it's the people who have no experience uh, in ESG who are trying to shut down ESG. The people who have lots of experience in investment, they like ESG. And so I think this will blow over. My personal opinion is that it will blow over. And my personal opinion is that it is a paper tiger. And also there's uh, no support outside the United States. So... Europeans are looking at this. The last time they thought Americans were so crazy was when we were doing scientific creationism. And that kind of blew over. No one really talks about scientific creationism anymore. I hope in five years, no one will be talking about anti-woke companies and anti-woke investors anymore. Are are companies more responsive to your ESG-related concerns and requests than they have been, say, in previous years? I retired in 2008 and I had not heard of ESG. Of course, ESG was only coined in 2005 or 2004, I believe. And uh, when we started doing our shareholder advocacy in 2017, uh, people would brush us off. But in 2022, everyone's paying attention. So in fact, the reason why there actually even is an anti-ESG movement is because people have started to pay attention. Paul, will you be expecting the SEC's new climate disclosure policy to significantly shake up investor and issuer engagements in the coming season? Uh, Not in the coming proxy season, because uh, once the SEC rules are finalized, which should be, we're thinking, the beginning of of 2023, there will be immediate court challenges. So... This could drag on for years, really. What's happening, though, is even without the SEC, 
large investors are becoming sort of shadow regulators. So even though TCFD reporting is not mandatory, for example, and even though reporting according to SASB standards is not mandatory, large investors are asking companies to report on those anyway. And just from a voluntary perspective, and not exactly voluntary because companies who don't report on those uh, will get more um, shareholder resolutions, they will get more challenges to directors, uh, they will get investors mad at them. And companies don't like having their investors mad at them because that's where they get all their money from. So uh, investors really hold the cudgel here. BlackRock is trying to make its cudgel much smaller by uh, devolving voting responsibility to uh, its clients so that it doesn't catch as much heat uh, when they vote either for or against a shareholder resolution. But uh, when you get right down to it, investors hold the power. And so um, even if the SEC didn't exist, uh, investors, the large investors would still be asking companies to report and companies would still be reporting. And, and lastly, do you have any exciting engagements planned for the 2023 proxy season? Yes, yeah, Sierra Club Foundation is filing resolutions with banks. Um, we are filing with four of the six largest U.S. banks. That's Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. Um, we filed last year resolutions with all six largest banks asking for uh, them to uh, adopt a policy that would keep them from financing fossil fuel expansion. So the International Energy Agency has said, um, if we get to a 1.5 degree world, uh, we will not need any new fossil fuel uh, oil or gas fields or any new coal mines. Um, IPCC, the UN uh, Intergovernmental Agency for Climate has said the same thing. We filed resolutions that said, uh, we would like you to adopt a policy where you are compliant with the IEA in not financing new fossil fuel exploration and production. Those got between, oh, 11 and 13% support, which was enough for us to refile. Uh, in talking to the investors who voted against, we learned that they thought those uh, resolutions were a little bit too prescriptive. So now we have uh, modified those resolutions a little bit, asking for a, not a policy to stop financing, but a policy to phase out financing. And so uh, we think those will garner a little bit more support uh, and then we can keep up the pressure because we can refile again next year. Well, thank you, Paul, for joining me. Thank you. And you are certainly not boring, actually, nor is anybody. <laughs> You'll have to ask my wife about that. That's it, though, for today's episode. Uh, so remember, if you want something discussed on a future episode or a particular guest you want to see in the hot seat, simply email incitia.press at diligent.com. I'm Kieran Paul, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>